This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 217. We're recording on Thursday, July 6th, 2017. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I am joined this week by Jen Northington while Jeff is on vacation, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, Jen. Hello. This is a different uh, setup for you from your weekly get booked business. Well, and now biweekly SFF, yeah, too. Let's not forget. (laughs) I can't believe you're on episode 217. Like so many episodes. When we say the number for get booked, I'm like, oh, 88. Like, that's so many. (laughs) That's really not that many. (laughs) I tried to do the math about like, okay, so we've done 216 podcasts together. And then Liberty and I have done like 115, I think. Mm. episodes of all the books and then Jeff and I have side projects and then you and I were on Book Rages together yes. for for yes. years and I was like how many hours have I spent podcasting so many so many well you could figure it out because we still have all the back catalogs of Book Rages at the very least like you oh, could that's true you could count it if you really felt like it so many hours it's so funny because SFF yeah is on episode like four and so type you know when I get the show notes prepped and you have to put it in the episode number I'm like oh how cute we're on number filler um and here you are in triple digits (laughs) we're gonna hit we're gonna hit 100 Amanda and I've been talking about what to do for episode 100 of get booked but Mm -hmm. I still even though I know it's coming I still think it's gonna come as a shock it is weird. I always feel like confetti should fall from my office yes. ceiling or something <laughs> Like when I hit a podcast milestone. And I then, know. of course, it doesn't. Like, I just sit here in my office like it's just a regular day. I'll try to, <laughs> for your 250th, I'll try to hire somebody to come and throw confetti at you from your front door. Yes. How about that? Yes, that would be great. Because the only <laughs> other exciting thing that happens when I'm sitting in my office like this is every now and then I see something out of the corner of my eye and there's a window right next to my desk and I will turn and my neighbor's white cat will be sitting up on the outside of my windowsill like staring at me and it's happened twice during podcast recordings where I'm like "Ah!" (laughs) the demon cat has come to observe maybe the cat can bring the confetti there you go I'll Um, attach a confetti cannon to the cat this is gonna work great are just kind of wild and woolly today (laughs) great when the cat's away I guess Mm. Um, so I'll do our first sponsor and then we can get into the news of the week just so that we're you know actually doing some business Um, so our first sponsor this week is the Cameron Brothers by Angeline Sidney the Cameron Brothers box set features four explosive action-packed romances that are definitely binge worthy it will take you to Cameron country Cameron of the skies and Cameron of the seas and then there's now a series prequel called lifesaver in a bikini oh they uh huh they all share one central theme that love makes us throw caution to the wind these books are available to read for free to amazon's kindle unlimited subscribers if you uh, and the books are exclusive to amazon so they're available in digital and as individual titles as well as standalone this series has plot driven narratives that have elements of drama romance and realistic action scenes and it's romance so who knows what kind of action it is hey, hey. um well developed characters that you're going to be hooked from the very first chapter and genuine australian quirky sense of humor the cameron brothers are so easy to fall in love with with their unabashed 
unabashed cockiness, and the books are written in a style that makes it easy for readers to picture the stories in their heads. These are, you know, those kinds of books that you're supposed to be able to see the movie as you're going. Also, the women are kick-ass, and they hold their own. They're not eye candy, but they are heroines who are equal to their men in strength and personality. All of this sounds great. If you need a romance series to binge through this summer, The Cameron Brothers is for you. Again, it's by Angeline Sydney. We'll have a link in the show notes. Or if you are a subscriber to Amazon's Kindle Unlimited series or service, you can get these all for free or pick them up on Amazon and digital as a set or individually. So thanks again to The Cameron Brothers by Angeline Sydney. All right. We have some follow-up from last week. I got a couple of emails from listeners wanting more discussion about what was going on with the TSA and t- asking people to remove their books from their uh, carry-on luggage, right. which raised some safety concerns and some privacy concerns and some what kind of things are they going to do when they see what your reading material <laughs> is. Uh, the piece that Jeff and I talked about on last week's show was from the ACLU. And so we have some follow-up this week that uh, in response to those responses, um, the test runs that were being conducted at airports in Missouri and California in early May are being put on hold. Uh, the TSA hasn't said, like, no, we'll never make people take books out for screen And it looks like in this piece, they actually are saying that in the past, we've had to have people remove books occasionally when we couldn't screen the contents of their bag if it was packed too tightly. It's just that that was not like a standard practice they were asking everyone to do. Um, So the TSA being what it is, of course, they're saying the only reason we would ever need to do this is for your safety. Um, They didn't really acknowledge the validity of the privacy concerns, but it seems like the ACLU is successful in making enough noise about this, that they're putting this on hold and trying to figure out the best tactics going forward to more successfully screen very densely packed carry-ons. Yeah. Well, and there's also some concerns about like, what if you've hollowed out a book and the paper is, you know, shielding Mm -hmm. whatever's inside. But the TSA seems to be trying to pass it off as this was like a test run of a new screening procedure. We test things all the time, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, all right, I see you. Sure. The reason you test them, I guess, is so you can see if they make a lot of people angry, you can stop them. (laughs) Like, stop them when it's only making people in Kansas City angry, like before you roll it out at LaGuardia. Yeah. When the ACE ACLU is is watching your screening practices, you probably need to reconsider them. That seems like a good rule of thumb. Yes. So I guess the upshot here for all of you who were concerned about this is that you can rest easy for now. Uh, Probably a continuing story to follow the development of as the TSA figures out what to do. Because I think really, unless the guidelines and the uh, fees for checked baggage get more affordable, the urge to densely pack your carry-on and try to avoid checking luggage is just going to get worse and worse. Um, So they're going to have to figure something out that they can do without violating anybody's privacy. Um, You can just imagine like... you can just imagine like the dystopian novels that evolve out of the out of oh, yeah. this. the books on the list that like you just just coincidentally it's like how coincidentally people with turbans on get screened more right like, coincidentally isn't that, isn't that so random that that's how it works mm-hmm. random screening super random yes absolutely random and by which we mean not at all. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want more info, uh, you can click the link to this story in the show notes. It goes out to some other stories about it, but that is the follow-up on that. So I guess good job ACLU for raising the alarm on that. It seems like it won't be happening for now. 
All right. Do you want to talk about these standards for accessible ebooks? This yeah. is the story you found this week. It is. I thought it was very interesting, and it's mostly because I, I am so bad at paying attention that it did not occur to me this was not already a thing. So what the story is is that there is a nonprofit firm called Benetech that's mission is to develop technology for social good, and they're launching a global certified accessible that's what it's called, Global Certified Accessible. It's a program that allows publishers to verify if their ebook follow files meet the standards for use that are needed by students with poor or no vision or dyslexia or other disabilities. So it's like a standardized rating system certification that universities cool. and schools in particular, right, can use to see if the titles that they're acquiring from these publishers will actually meet the guideline, like the needs of their students who might need more accessibility in their ebooks. And I, again, like it's just me being bad at paying attention. And you're like, oh, this is this is literally the first time this is happening. That's terrible. Like this should already be in place. So it's and of course there's no standards across the board, right? Like this is and they're targeting this at schools and universities, which is a great place to start. But you know, like, where's iTunes, iBooks on this? Where's Kobo? Like, do they, does anybody require basic accessibility things? I don't think they do. So, yeah, I don't think they do either. I know for a little while there was, or maybe it's still available and I just haven't heard about it in a while. Um, Kindles had a thing where you could do like text to speech <laughs> right. for uh, yeah. ebooks, but there was, there were some concerns that that would like infringe on the audiobook business. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, and there's like font things and there's all kinds of different things that can help with uh, accessibility. So, you know, text to speech is just one of the many right. um, issues. But I thought it was interesting. So in, in the Ingram Content Group is incorporating this uh, standard into their platforms that help publish e-textbooks. So that's, I mean, that's a good start. Mm -hmm. I hope to see a bunch more people picking these up or somebody else, you know, providing ones that are used in commercial ebooks or, you know, I, I think it's, it's probably long overdue and it's, it's nice to see someone getting it started. I wonder if there's any equivalent for print. Like, it's very interesting to me that we are just now talking about this for ebooks and for digital files, but if you're using a print textbook in a class and you're a student who has dyslexia, you can't adjust the font on it. No, like, you certainly cannot get the Comic Sans version of that textbook. Right, right. You're just kind of oh yeah stuck. Well, that's um, how it's uh, that's how it's been forever, yeah. right? Like that, yeah. I wonder if you're listening to this and you know something about this, let us know at podcast at bookriot.com. I would love to know if there are similar or like parallel strides being made for accessibility of print books, especially textbooks I, that are so yeah. expensive. I was going to say, I can't imagine that, you know, in the way that you can get large print for, you know, some commercial titles, mm -hmm. I, I cannot imagine there are large print textbooks. The print runs are so low and the books are so expensive, but I mean, there, there should be options. They just, I, I bet there aren't, but I, yeah, I would love to hear if yeah, anybody I knows. believe you. I also <laughs> suspect that there probably aren't. It just sort of like my spidey sense is just sort of sort of going off of like, well, yeah, we should obviously be doing this yeah. with digital books. But 
the bulk of college texts, I would assume, are still being read in print. And I think actually we've seen those numbers that college students still prefer print books for what they're doing in classes um, who know, for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, so it would be interesting to know, like, does accessibility just fall through the cracks? My sad suspicion there is that it does for uh, for print books. But if you know something, please do let us know. That was a really interesting find. Yeah, this week. I thought so. All right. Where do you want to go next? I kind of want to talk about Early Word, if we can jump to that. Um, Yeah, let's jump. Early Word is a librarian resource. It's like a website that also has a newsletter and galley chats. Like it has, it's a, it's a site, I guess is the right word for it, but they are focused on or have been focused on helping librarians find titles and, you know, ideas about what you should add to your collections development and covering news stories that are relevant to the library world. And I've been getting their newsletter for a while, not because I'm a librarian, but because I think it's super interesting. And they, so they, they saw a piece that one of our contributors wrote about the lack of diversity in the library reads selections uh, since library reads launched library reads being a monthly list of books that are recommended by librarians across the country and so but the the because it's a sort of you know you have to nominate a title and the title has to get enough nominations to get on the list and nobody's really guiding the process to ensure that it's an inclusive list so it hasn't been so in order to help librarians find more titles to nominate early word asked publishers to put together catalogs of forthcoming books that would be that are diverse so that librarians can easily access them which is a great idea uh super i I mean it's a a good idea (laughs) (laughs) except for that early word is shutting down so like the next post after they announced these catalogs was that they're closing except for their chats so the catalogs are on edelweiss and i grabbed all of the links to the ones that are currently there and we'll drop them in the show notes because i don't think the catalogs will go away even though early word is um but they won't be linked i don't know where else you would find the links to them so at the very least they'll be in the show notes of this episode Yeah, this whole thing was really interesting. We've been following Library Reads for a while, and I think when they first launched it, Jeff and I talked about the picks that were on the list for the first couple of quarters, and then we were like, this is so white, we can't talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have some, I do have some sympathy with the steering committee, not least because I know some of them. And they, when they organized it, their goal was to make it a true nominations-based list. So it's, it really 100% is relying on nominations, but that's obviously very fraught. Yeah. It reveals, Yeah, I mean, it reveals some of the things that we know happen with this systemic, basically systemic racism Mm -hmm. and lack of inclusivity in publishing is that if you make something just based on nominations, it ends up pulling from availability, pulling from the titles that are at the top of mind for people. Right. Often those are the ones that have had the most marketing put behind them. And those are typically books by white people because there are just so many more books by white people published and promoted than books by people of color. So if it's not an active effort to be reading diversely and nominating Mm -hmm. diverse and inclusive titles, you just default, whether you want to or not, to a very white list. And I know we I know some of those folks from Library Reads as well. And so I know like that's not their intention at all. And it's certainly not the outcome that they wanted, but the system that they have set up for themselves has sort of locked them into like, well, we can't weed out the titles. Like when we talked about it behind the scenes, I said like 
Uh, we don't really have this issue at Book Riot anymore because we've been working with contributors for so many years now on reading diversely that the content typically makes itself diverse organically. Um, there are some things that like if you're you know trying to find 18th century comedy of manners um, stories, you're going to have to know like, well, there aren't very many of these written by people of color. But for the most part, the content can be organically diverse, but you have to start with pointing people in the direction of diverse books. And so I'm really glad to see that step being taken by publishers. This is a resource that would have been so useful years ago. Yeah. Like, it yeah. seems so obvious now. Like, why didn't they make these catalogs when we need diverse books yes. um, emerged, right? Like, so to point true. All those To point all those people on the internet to who were like, I want to read more diversely, but I don't know what to where to go to get those. And I guess like the answer is first you came to book riot to get them, (laughs) which is not a bad thing. (laughs) No, we'll take that. And we need diverse books to so much great work online, but I would like to see this continue. I hope that the publishers will take this and continue to do whatever they need to do to tag their inclusive titles Mm -hmm. so that they can be easily found by people. Like that's the first step. If you're a librarian or a teacher or a blogger, or you write for book riot or a reviewer for Kirkus or whatever is you have to be reading the titles that aren't just by white people. And this makes those easier to find. So I certainly hope these catalogs will stay available, but also that they'll continue them because you eventually do want to get beyond like having to go to the catalog that sets the books by people of color apart from everything else. You want those to naturally be part of your reading life so that they can naturally be part of the things that you recommend. But this is a really good first step. Mm -hmm. And also activism on the internet works. (laughs) (laughs) Just had to get that in there. (laughs) Legit. Legit. It's true, though. Um, It's true. It is. It's like it's it's really interesting how that shakes out. So we'll have a link in the show notes to the piece that Katie McLean wrote for Book Riot. She breaks down some of the numbers about library reads as well as to this early word piece that uh, includes the catalogs and Jen's links to the catalogs. And you can learn more about that. If you have thoughts about these diversity catalogs, we'd love to know those, too. So you can always shout us out about that while we're talking about having dander up about yes. things. Do you want to talk about men's rights I activists? I do. I do. Let's talk about that. So this happened in uh, Brisbane, Australia at the bookstore Avid Reader. Um, it's an independent bookstore and an Australian feminist writer named Clementine Ford was announcing there that she had signed a contract to write her second book. The book is called Boys Will Be Boys and it examines Tosca toxic masculinity, um, which makes the response to it as the writer of this Guardian piece notes particularly (laughs) ironic. Um, The bookstore's social media manager said he started to notice nasty comments appearing on the bookstore's Facebook post that evening that were attacking the writer for her feminist views and attacking the bookstore for supporting her. And the comments were accompanied by a bunch of one-star reviews, which claimed there were hundreds of them overnight, like in all caps, disgusting manhandling bookstore that promotes misandrism. Right, right. <laughs> uh, we'll never you... shop again. <laughs> right. Um, at the time of the publication, the Avid Reader's Facebook page had 246 one-star reviews of the store. People are negatively reviewing the bookstore. Um, and that had been outweighed by over 2,700 five-stars. Um, but the MRAs were trying to bring this bookstore down for daring to 
support a feminist writer and the supporters saw it and like counteracted it by (laughs) yeah like the words toxic masculinity were used on the internet so immediately (laughs) everyone has to freak out but yeah the lovely thing is that you know other people so the the social media manager got real salty with these people which is like I can't you when you read the Guardian article you will see some of their responses and it's Mm -hmm. very entertaining but some friends of the store started rallying people to do the the five-star reviews and it just turned into I mean you know 2700 that's a lot that's a lot yes that's delightful it's it's so many it's one of those things where I kind of want to be like oh welcome to the internet (laughs) (laughs) yes we've never experienced anything like this have we no certainly not like somewhere Amanda Nelson is taking her earrings out right Right. now (laughs) hold my beer (laughs) just hearing this happen but just I mean this stuff happens whether I assume whether it's a bookstore or any other kind mm-hmm. of business, we've seen things about other progressive, like bakeries ha- getting, uh, you know, yeah. attacked this way online for like making a cake for a gay couple for their wedding. It's not, it's not anything new, but bookstores are like gentle businesses typically, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like we think of them that way. It's like cozy. And it was kind of cool to see you were, you're right. Like they came out salty mm-hmm. and it it was great, but I just would not have guessed that this was going to be a headline this no. week. Like, it's, I mean, come on, find something better to do. Take your fedora elsewhere. Yeah, um, it just seems like such a, like, just the that she's writing a book that includes toxic masculinity. Like, I, I would not have guessed that would be the trigger, I guess, yeah. is the well, part guess, that I'm surprised about. It's also just extremely excellent. It's that rule where internet comments prove the Mm. um, toxicity of the thing that you're talking about. Indeed. The the comments on every post about feminism prove to us why we need feminism. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. You're kind of shooting yourself in the foot there, folks. Uh, So uh, if you want to check out Avid Reader, those uh, links will be in this post that's also in the show notes. Maybe you can give them a like and a five star (laughs) review on Facebook in solidarity. Uh, (laughs) Five stars for salty community management. I will. A plus one. (laughs) Wood shop again. I do love this like golden age of salty community managers Mm -hmm. that we're in. It's happening more and more like. I think some credit goes to the Mer- whoever runs the Merriam-Webster Twitter account. Oh, yes. It's very good. It is very, very good. It's, Agree. It's so excellent. So congratulations, Avid Reader Bookstore, on standing your ground. And to Clementine Ford, this is kind of really excellent accidental publicity. Yes. So good for her. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Let's, uh, let's do our next sponsor before yes. we keep on cooking. Let us do our next sponsor, which is Penguin Random House Audio. It is summer, as you might have noticed, and that means it is a very good time for road trips with the family. But as you also know, road trips can be very long and get a little bit old when you're all trapped in the car together. So audiobooks are a great way to spend that time. And... 
Penguin Random House has a bunch of audiobooks that are good for the whole family. So they are doing a thing where if you visit tryaudiobooks.com slash family dash travel, which will be in the show notes so you can click it and not have to type it out, uh, they have suggested listens for you and a free audiobook download of My Father's Dragon, which gives me all the, the cuddly, snuggly feelings. That's a, that's a classic. That's a kid's classic. They also have books like The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman, uh, Harry Potter, of course, uh, and other ones that are going to be good for the whole family to listen to, keep everybody entertained all at the same time, which is no mean feat. So you should definitely check it out. That's tryaudiobooks.com slash family dash travel, and you will get a free audiobook download of My Father's Dragon. Now I have this, I was thinking about national parks the other day, and I have this like <laughs> glorious vision of a, like, you know, a family on the road listening to a book about dragons as they head towards, you know, Bryce Canyon or something. Oh, Jen, you're speaking my language. I know, right? Come on. I want to take that road trip. Let's do it. <laughs> we should. National parks and audiobooks mm-hmm. and family time. That yes. sounds lovely. It you don't does. have to be a you, you don't have to be a kid to appreciate, you know, Philip Pullman or Harry Potter. Like, come on. Yeah, I know, and especially with the twentieth anniversary of Harry Potter oh, right. earlier yes. this month, I've been thinking about finally doing those on oh. audio because I read them, but it sounds like the audio experience would just which, be so lovely. Which narrator will you do though? This is the question. Oh, ooh, that is a good question. Maybe Jim Dale because yeah. he did the Night Circus, and Bob really loved the Night Circus on audio. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michelle, Jeff's partner, like lives inside the audiobook of the Night Circus. Oh, she really? just she does she loves it she has like we've talked about it on the show before i'm not like telling tales out of school um that she has cha- like little chapters or sections marked so when she needs like a comfort read she can just go back to those favorite places of the ninth circus um so pr- i would probably give jim dale the edge there that's legit that's legit well thank you penguin random house audio so much for sponsoring the show you have sent us down a lovely rabbit hole <laughs> now I'm panicking like, wait, is it Stephen Fry on the Random House audiobooks? Did I, I just <laughs> <laughs> There's a bunch of options. Random House publishes many books and you will surely find you something that you like. You will surely find something that you like. Surely, surely. Speaking of finding something that you can like, uh, the folks at Humble Bundle oh, are yes. great mm-hmm. at that. We have, I guess, full disclosure, we've worked with them in the past. But one of the ongoing gripes of this podcast is how infrequently tech companies release information about how they are actually doing. And <laughs> Humble Bundle <laughs> this week gave us some numbers, or more accurately, they gave numbers to Publishers Weekly. But I was so excited to see them. If you're not familiar, Humble Bundle, I think they started maybe with gaming and then they expanded to ebooks. I'm not yeah, positive which. Pre 2014, they were primarily, I mean, I think entirely a video game bundle site. So they make groups of ebooks and games available. And it's like if you spend up to, you know, or at least what, 10 bucks, let's say, yeah. like here's the first threshold. And if you pay that threshold number, you get this chunk of audio or of ebooks. And if you spend up to another threshold, then you get those first however many, and then some more. And there's always a couple of levels. Um, so you get a bundled price and a bunch of great things. They always have cool themes. It's been really interesting to watch how they've expanded that out. But it's like sometimes there's, uh, they did Black History one and they've done a bunch of sci-fi fantasy ones. And they've, I think there was a Neil Gaiman mm-hmm. book bundle last year. There's that been included, comics ones. And- yeah, all sorts of stuff. Um, 
let's see, music books, just all kinds of things. And they are giving us some numbers this week. They have generated $30 million in revenue from 130 ebook bundles. So that's an average of $230,000 per bundle. That's a um, lot. That is, is that a lot? lot. That's a lot. That it's, sounds like a lot. It's to a me. lot. Yeah, we don't know like what their staffing costs right. are or anything, so um, it doesn't indicate here the breakout between that revenue and what their actual profit is. But that is a lot. Mm-hmm. Two hundred and thirty thousand dollars per ebook bundle on average. Yeah, that yeah. ain't bad. And some of the these high- numbers too. Yeah, go ahead. Right. I was say the highest grossing one was in twenty sixteen. Or the highest grossing ones from 2016 included, there was an RPG bundle that made $1.3 million. Um, so 10% of, uh, oh, sorry. That's not 10%. I'm doing fuzzy math. <laughs> <laughs> there was a um, No Starch Press hacking book bundle that they sold 67,000 bundles mm-hmm, of. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a revenue, oh, yeah, high re- revenue comics bundle from Image Comics that did 20,000 bundles. And then that Neil Gaiman um, thing sold 24,000 bundles. And the site, I've, I've always liked this about Humble Bundle, they allow users to designate a portion of your donation for the bundle to go to charity. There's usually, there's a little slider where you're like, I'm, I'm spending $12 to get this bundle and I want two of the dollars to go to charity. And then they also have like a tip jar mm-hmm. where you can designate some of the money you're spending to go to the staff of, hum, of Humble Bundle. It's very cool. They've donated $16 million to various charities. So Thirty million in revenue, just from their ebook bundles, and I guess this sixteen million dollars from to various charities includes money from ebook bundles and gaming and other things. But that's a really significant chunk of the money coming in their door that they're able to send back out. Yeah, they are. It says here that the site is going to mark more than a hundred million dollars in donations to charities since it started in twenty ten, which is amazing. That's awesome. I remember in twenty fourteen, I've been a humble bundle person, person, user, I don't know, patron, what's the right word? A bundler. There we go. I've been a bundler for a while now. And I remember when they were first, because Cory Doctorow was working with them on some of maybe the first one or just a very early ebook bundles. And he was on tour. So we ended up talking about it at one of his events. And the problem, why it sort of took them forever to start doing ebook bundles in the first place is, of course, DRM, Mm -hmm. always DRM, right? So you had to start with a public that was willing to forego the DRM that they would otherwise use. And not every publisher is willing to do that. So Corey was talking about, you know, trying to curate a bundle and how he couldn't get half of the books that he wanted because the publisher was just not on board. So it's nice to see that they've been able to do, you know, 130 ebook bundles since they started, which is great. Um, but there's still a pretty, I'm, I think there's still a pretty limited number of publishers, especially the big houses who will actually participate. Yeah. As Jeff would say, there's a lot of ceiling left here yes, that, so much. for them, <laughs> for them to grow if publishers, would make it possible. And a a couple of years ago, I think I'm allowed to tell this story. We were, um, I I was talking to Humble Bundle about doing like a book riot bundle with them. Mm. And the, our thought at that time was that we could do kind of a start here bundle that included one of book riots, start here eBooks that tell you how like reading plans for getting into some of the big authors that you might've been wanting to read. And then like one or two books from several of those authors. But the problem was like, 
it was, you know, how to read into Toni Morrison. Well, she's at Random House and they're not going to participate. Mm -hmm. How to read into, uh, basically, unless it was public domain, we couldn't couldn't get any of the books that we wanted. (laughs) It was like, here's your bundle of one book. Yes. Happy bundling. (laughs) It was so frustrating. And I only had to go through that process once. um, Mm. And it's the thing that Kelly Allen and the Humble Bundle team do all the time. And I imagine slash hope at this point, they have ongoing relationships with the publishers that they know will play ball with them. And they're able to, I hope, move a little bit faster. But right now, you know, their publishing partners include Dark Horse Comics, HarperCollins, IDW, Make, O'Reilly, Simon & Schuster, and Viz Media. And so you'll note there that three of the big five are missing. Mm Um, and HarperCollins was one of the first, I think the first of the big five to get on board with some of the other, uh, the ebook subscription services when Oyster and Scribd uh, were really taking off. So you can't, you just can't like, I'm, I would like to know what was involved in making the Neil Gaiman book bundle happen and who, you know, got publishers, got the publishers on board to agree to do those because you could, there's, you could like, you could do, I don't know, like a giant John Scalzi one. You could do women of science fiction and like, there's just a million different bundles you could do, but they're, they have to feel so hamstrung. Yeah. I mean, every now and then I get frustrated with their bundles because the selection is not what I would necessarily like it to be for some of the bundles. And, and, you know, often it is not the most inclusive selection. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, but I, you know, I think part of the reason in addition to systemic racism is that they only have a very, they have a limited selection of of things that they can get uh, because of DRM issues. So, and they did, they did do a bundle with DRM with DC last year, but it's very hard to manage that. So I can't imagine they can do too many more. That's, it's just so much work. So complicated. So complicated. I wonder, I was wondering, looking at this, these, you know, 30 million in revenue ebook bundles, I wonder if this is the thing that the publishers are afraid of. Like when the, um, when Oyster and Scribd launched and some of the publishers were saying like, we're just afraid of getting into these subscription services, these all you can eat things where we won't make very much money per reader of the title, it erodes the value. Um, this is maybe this is like the sleeping dragon um, here, here too. Well, and you know, you can drag that slider for where your money goes kind of wherever you want for Humble Bundles. So you mm. could you could put way more to charity, you could put way less to the publisher or way less to the site or the author. I mean, so there's also, when you think about it, there's that risk too. Most people aren't going to mess with it that much, but you, in theory, are also losing profits to, to charity. <laughs> How dare they? How dare they? Um, but you know what I mean? Like, it's it's humble bundles model is sort of you know includes this mm-hmm. ability to redistribute where the money you're actually paying goes which i can't imagine the publishers are super psyched about either so yeah it's very interesting it is um props to humble bundle yes. on the success of what they're doing and also props for releasing those numbers mm-hmm. this also supports my theory that you release numbers if you're actually excited about what your <laughs> press release says. And if your press release says you're thrilled with your success, but there are no numbers, it's just not real. <laughs> I would believe that. I believe That's it. That's my miniature tinfoil hat mm. moment. For. <laughs> Gotta have at least one per show, right? That's the it's rule. It's true. 
It's true. Okay, there's something going on with the Tolkien estate. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? I guess so. Okay, so here's what happened. <laughs> oh, boy, you're laughing already. <laughs> Warner Brothers and the, and the Tolkien estate had a lawsuit, an $80 million lawsuit over digital merchandising. Okay. Right? Okay. So what happened was that the lawsuit got filed in 2012 by Tolkien's estate, who were saying that Warner Brothers was in breach of contract and violating copyright infringement for characters because they were doing um, digital licensing, which the estate claimed was not in the scope of the rights that were sold in 1969 when Warner Brothers oh, because got the digital rights. licensing exactly, totally existed in 1969. Because, exactly. <laughs> so it probably didn't specify one way or the other. So I would assume that Warner Brothers was like, well, it doesn't say we can't. And Tolkien's estate was like, well, it doesn't say you can. And one of the problems was that there was an online gambling <laughs> slot game themed like Lord of the Rings themed slots and which the Tolkien estate was like yeah no oh and they learned about it from a spam spam email email. like it just gets better and better so and the, the lawsuit refers to it as morally questionable and decidedly non literary world of online and casino gambling which just cracks me up oh man oh boy so good so good so initially Warner Brothers countersued but now they have settled so yeah Tolkien gambling like who knew <laughs> that's so clearly this is about the gambling it's not about the existence of digital well I mean I think things. that they probably also were not delighted with other things but if you're gonna pick a thing to hang your hat on online gambling is probably the thing that you pick right right yeah I don't have any idea how this stuff with rights works to imagine technologies that don't exist yet but might someday like yeah how usually it says something about like yet to be devised or intangibles Mm. or like like, there's I'm sure that there's wording in there but apparently was loose enough or Warner Brothers thought they could get away with it who knows right and clearly the gambling thing and the (laughs) non-literary aspect like that poked their delicate sensibilities Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very delicate (laughs) The Tolkien estate, it seems like they their scruples are maybe not all in the same place. Like, they're upset about... The Tolkien estate is upset about this. Like, the presentation of the characters on a morally questionable... <laughs> Slots, Rebecca. <online> Slots. <laughs> gambling thing. Right, on a slot machine. Uh-huh. Which, cool. Is it like if you get three golems, you lose? I mean, I don't know. But, <laughs> but now I kind of want to find out. Right. <laughs> Um, it's been nice knowing you, but I'll understand if we, if we lose you to the world of online Lord of the Rings gambling. <laughs> um, but they also like some of the the quote unquote like newly discovered Tolkien books have seemed like like they are also maybe aren't in the, really in the best interest of the legacy of the state the estate even if they're in the best fiduciary interests. Well, yeah, I mean that's tough because the thing about things like Baron and Luthien which just came out um and which I read to so that I could talk about it in our sci-fi fantasy newsletter is that it's really how do I want to say this? It's very specific and academic. Like it's like basic you're you're reading what amounts to, you know, an annotated and footnote and exhaustively researched, you know, epic, like, book on 
Tolkien's rough notes on a story. So, you know, I'm sure that they just have tons and tons of his papers because he spent tons and tons of time developing this world in exhaustive detail, you know, the mythology and the languages and the the names change constantly. And he's, you know, dealing with like root forms of verbs. And it's, it's crazy the amount of work he put into it. So it's not surprising to me that they keep finding more things that they can publish. Um, that doesn't surprise me at all. But I think that also you really have to be a diehard fan who who likes seeing that process work to want to own them. So, I mean, I like it's not like Baron and Luthien is going to be a bestseller, right? Like you're not going to sell a bajillion copies of that. Do you think they thought they would? They must I know. Don't know. Now we're just they must know cuz this is not the first one, right? They have sales figures. That's true. For other things cuz this is not oh. the first one. Oh, Jen, publishing I, and logic. <laughs> I know. Well, it's true. I mean, and and if I was Christopher Tolkien, I mean, oh, I shouldn't even go here. I don't know. Like, he seems really into it, right? Like, I, mm-hmm. he seems super into the academia side of it, which I kind of find exhausting personally. But he's not the only one. So, I, I mean, I guess it's like a give that very specific subset of people what they want situation. I guess so. I guess. And- and if you're making online gambling or non-literary uses <laughs> of a property that you have right. licensed, by God, don't let it send out spam email. No, seriously. That is the real takeaway. <laughs> that is the worst way to get caught. Can you imagine? I mean, that's... And like what bad luck that it just happened to... <laughs> yeah, that somebody actually looked at the spam email. Right. Who does that? Who does that? Who looks at spam? Uh, in the realm of... Things that I wouldn't have predicted but that I guess kind of makes sense. We got news this week that the next season, which will be season eight yep. of Game of Thrones, yep. gosh, that's so many seasons already, might have feature length episodes, which is 80 minutes. But less the 80 of minute them. range. The kicker but, is there's right. less of them. So do you want that? <laughs> like, I. <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask this question because I stopped watching a while back. Okay, so let's imagine that instead of t- like 15 episodes of Pretty Little Liars. Oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> that are 50 minutes each, you could watch 10 80 minute episodes. You know, it's not a bad comp because the plots are equally banana pants. Um, <laughs> I was wondering like, where that less- sentence was about to go. <laughs> like, there's not any dragons or zombies in Pretty Little Liars, but the plots often go wildly off the rails, which I think is fair to say about uh, Game of Thrones. So, I personally do not want TV that's that long. I I really don't. 40 minutes is a nice, like, even, you know, some of my Great British Bake Off feelings, like, that's a real good, because that, I'm obsessed with that show. Okay, Great British Bake Off. But I don't want an 80-minute episode. I want 50 minutes max. Because at 80 minutes, like, I might as well have watched a movie. Now, that being said, Sherlock and Black Mirror have both done this and been very successful. People like the format. So there are clearly viewers out there who are interested. What I wonder is that they're switching from the current hour-long duration and then moving to an 80-plus minute range. So, like, has any other show ever switched midstream that way? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think so. And, like, if they did, how did it go? Like, I wonder. It seems like a weird decision to me. I'm not sure I get why they're doing it. 
Yeah. I wonder if like, if they know from like HBO go data Mm. that people aren't just sitting down and watching one episode at a time, but they're watching like, maybe you're watching three 50 minute episodes in one go. So you might as well watch two 80 minute episodes. You know, that's a fair point though. That is a fair point. I'd be really interested in that. I was thinking like when Breaking Bad was kind of at its peak, one of the things that I said to people who were like, oh, I never was able to get into that show. Why do you like it? Was that to me, it felt like watching a movie every week. Mm. Like they did it in 50 minutes, but it was produced so well that it was like watching something that was made with the care that a feature film is made. And I can't, I loved Breaking Bad. I don't know if I would want to have watched 80 minutes of it in one go. Like there's something, maybe it's just familiarity, but there's something like nice about you can have a really satisfying television experience in 50 minutes, but committing to 80, that seems like a lot to me. But if people are like, if the guess is correct and people are actually watching like three hours in one go, then I guess that's moot. The other, I'm curious. The other thing I wonder about this is that, so there are like how many episodes are in a season, right? Varies from one show to the next, but there yeah. are sort of generally accepted guidelines for how long a season is, um, which are getting shorter and shorter. Like we used to have like what, 24 episode Mm -hmm. seasons and now we have 12, but it may be because they said season eight is going to be less episodes. Were they at like a weird number of episodes? And so they're like, well, if we add 20 minutes to every episode, we'll be at a better number of episodes. Like, yeah. Cause it says that there'll be six. Right. Um, I don't maybe know if it right, matters. Maybe, maybe they were like at seven and it was like, we only have seven episodes. Right? That's we? a weird number. Like we need, it's like the reason you do lists of 10 on the internet or seven, like is, yeah. is, is eight the wrong number of episodes for a season? I have no idea. This is just me wildly <laughs> right. speculating. Right. There's no explanation of where this idea came no. from. So now we're just guessing. Right. Just doing a lot of ridiculous guessing, but you know. But it's a fun one to guess about. It is. Well, and then it makes me wonder, you know how it's getting all of those spinoffs? Well, there's three potential spinoffs. We'll see how many mm-hmm. of them actually get made. How long will those episodes be? Oh. Maybe they're testing it. Maybe they're testing an 80-minute episode in season seven. Oh, Jen, now you're on to something. <laughs> I have theories. My tinfoil hat is coming out. <laughs> Welcome to the Big podcast. <laughs> Baseless theories are us. <laughs> Show title. Hooray. <laughs> I think that that's our show. I can't think of a better note to end on this week. <laughs> so thank you to our sponsors, the Cameron Brothers, and also Penguin Random House Audio. We'll have links to all of those in the show notes, which you can access right inside whatever podcatcher you are using to listen to this episode. Just click your way to more information. If you've got a minute to rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts, we would certainly appreciate that. If you want to get more Jen, you can listen to her with Amanda every week on the Get Booked podcast and every other week on SFF Yeah, which is about sci-fi and fantasy. And if you have not checked out Annotated yet, it is our new short season. We've got, we're going to do six episodes as a kind of experiment this year. Um, audio documentary show about books, reading, and language. The first one is about how and why 1984 became a bestseller again earlier this year, but also how 1984 became what it was in the first place, including some very surprising 
information about uh, the groups of people who supported making 1984 into a movie. Um, I don't want to spoil any more of it. I was really (laughs) shocked while reading the script for it. Um, Jeff has been just killing it working on that, and I'm really happy to get to sit in his sidecar on that. So by the time you hear this show, the second episode will be on its way out, um, out next Thursday, I believe. Uh, on the 13th. So hang tough, look for that. The first episode is available to you now. And if you're listening to Annotated because it's new and because we don't know what it's going to do, if you like that show, please, please do rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. If you have a note for us, you can do that at podcast at bookriot.com and find the show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky. That's S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Jen, where can the people find you? Mostly Tumblr these days. It's jenirl.tumblr.com. That's Jen with two N's, I-R-L. All right. We'll see you next week.